0: Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Near the end of season one, I reached out to a few podcasts that I really like to see about collaborating or maybe doing an episode swap. And one of the podcasts I reached out to was one called Your Mental Breakdown. And I gave them a shout out in the fishbowl at the end of season one, and they're still, still doing really good work. But nothing came of that. And then fast forward to last winter, and I got a call from Doug Friedman who's the co-host and producer of Your Mental Breakdown. And he said that he had just recently been in Colorado doing a healing healing journey, and one of the things that was meaningful to him was listening to Back from the Abyss. And he asked if he might tell his story, his abyss story on the podcast. And as he began to describe it, I felt so honored that that he was willing and wanting to speak publicly for the first time on this podcast. Doug has mentioned a number of times on Your Mental Breakdown that his wife passed away the same week in 2018 that he was diagnosed with MS. But the details of his loss are actually much more profound and heartbreaking. That's because Doug's beloved wife, Kim, who was also a psychotherapist, she died by suicide when her bipolar disorder overtook her. And as you listen to this story, it may seem like Kim's suicide comes rocketing out of nowhere, but I think it's worth noting here that a significant percentage of completed suicides occur with little to no warning. After Kim's death, Doug plunged into a process of painful reckoning that finally culminated in a move to the Colorado mountains to plumb his emotional depths through songwriting and music. The result of his inner process, of this working through the paralyzing grief and the overwhelming emotions, it's the music that you will hear throughout this story. I recorded this in Doug's office in Los Angeles, sitting in his chair, the therapist's chair, while he sat across from me on the couch. We hit record, and this beautiful and terrifying and ultimately, I think, redemptive story just spilled out. I... I mostly felt like a witness, like Doug needed me to be there to finally be able to tell this story. And it was such a gift to receive this. Thank you, Doug.
1: 2018 was a, a rough year for us, uh, for Kim and I, for Kim and me, uh, both of us, and each of us individually. <laughs> and we we were kind of supporting each other through it. And almost not really laughing about it, but almost just looking at, wow, you're going through this mentally. I'm going through this physically. And I think the in 2017, I'd lost my dog of 13 years, who was my soulmate and best friend. Um, and we had just gotten Beckett. And in January, we got Beckett. Three days later, we got burglarized. And that was huge for a lot of people. Kim's grandmother's ring was stolen among other things and just the invasion, right? Um, shortly after that, uh, we were trying to get pregnant and it was difficult and, you know, we couldn't do it very easily. Kim found out she was fairly anemic and a few other things were going on and converged for her where she realized she needed to get back on the meds for bipolar two. And she had managed bipolar two successfully for a long time, for a lot of her life, and went back on the meds that worked for her. And we were talking to a psychiatrist that we knew almost daily while this was happening. Um, when we got to about the summer of 2018, I had a very bizarre headache that I, I, I have a pretty high threshold for pain and this was intense, and I had no idea what it was, and it went away a few weeks later, it hit me again in this office before seeing client. an hour before I was gonna see a client, and I didn't know what it was, and I called Kim, and she came out to me, brought Gatorade, and you know, what do you need, are you dehydrated, like, I, and I was retching, I was, I'd sweat through a shirt, sweat through pants, and we didn't know, and I hate doctors, hate hospitals, and next thing you know, there's eight paramedics, in this very room, taking me, you know, to the ER where I wound up in the ICU overnight, and they had no idea what it was. While that was going on, Kim thought I was going to die. We, we had, again, no idea what was happening. You know, all the tests that they were running, nothing. And she's going through this in her head of everything that's been happening throughout the year, and here's my partner, and my partner might not be here anymore. I didn't know anything. I'm just in a hospital in a daze. And I come out of the hospital and they still don't know what it is. And they just say like, well, we found some white matter on your brain, but you want to get that looked at. If you were 20, we'd keep an eye on it. If you were 60, everybody's got it, but you're in between. So get it checked out. Didn't think anything of it. A few months later, I have vertigo for an entire month. I've never had that before. And still not really sure what's going on. We're trying to see a neurologist. I see somebody get a few tests, uh, do a spinal tab, do all these tests, and had another another night where I started going uh, paresthesia, pins and needles feeling that crept up my arm, went down my side, down my leg, and wound up in the ER, and they kind of said, look, it's not a heart event, we don't know what it is, and you're seeing the head of our neurology department in two days, so whatever we're going to tell you, he's going to tell you. So we did, and uh, long story medium. Uh, he said it's probably MS, but I'm not sure.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we kind of went, "Well, wait, wait, wait. Could it just be like a you know a blow to the back of the head?" Because as an athlete, I've gotten hit in the back of the neck. I've been concussed a few times. You know, maybe it's that. And it's like, no, no. We're seeing certain markers. I'm just not sure, and I certainly don't know what kind of MS it would be. So see a specialist, but get in to see somebody quickly. That was the end of September 2018. So meanwhile, I'm walking around with paresthesia on my left side, which means the left side of my body was pins and needles. And it's not quite numb, but it's not quite there. And I was literally walking around our house going, What the hell's going on? This is so weird. This is so weird. Meanwhile, Kim is experiencing, you know, some dissociation. Uh, She had lost a sense of herself. She had actually lost herself. There was one stretch where she didn't sleep for a few days and with the psychiatrist trying different meds to get her stabilized again, going on a benzo to help her sleep. And, you know, that worked and she got rested and took things like taking a beta blocker and within 15 minutes going... Oh my God, I'm back. Gosh, that was so weird. That was so bizarre. Mm-hmm. And then a day later, she again had that loss of self, not mm-hmm. just sense of self, but loss of loss of self. She didn't know who she was or what she was doing or what she liked doing. So we're both walking through this, me physically, her mentally. And we're kind of leaning on each other and just kind of saying, just hold on, just hold on. We'll get through it. Just, just a wave, hold on. So that was our 2018. Pretty much consistently from January through October, It was something like that, right? So you knew she was really struggling. Yeah. Yeah. And the struggles, she knew it too. She was trying to figure it out, you know, and she kept looking at the events. You know, two of her best friends were going through divorces and separations, and one of them had lost their father. So there was a lot of loss around her, and she was an empath, so she took that on. And, you know, the not getting pregnant, all these different things. Like she's trying to find reasons, like why is this happening? She's getting back on the meds. They're not working right away. And she kept saying things like, "Uh, this feels familiar. Like, okay, was was it the depression? You know, well, yeah, but there's some anxiety too. Like, okay, well, what's that? What's going on? You know, so we would talk about this. And she was actively working it out. She was seeing her old therapist that she knew for many years. She tried a new therapist that did somatic experiencing work. She was talking to the psychiatrist. Uh, she even tried a new CBT therapist. I mean, she was really trying to do all this, and she was still seeing clients. And some days she was present, and some days she was not. And it was very confusing. And, you know, I, we didn't really know how to support either one of us, Mm -hmm. right? We were just helping each other and hoping that in time, some of this would stabilize and make sense. It's really hard because I can look at it in retrospect and see things, but I don't hold myself responsible for not being more attuned. I did. I went through that stretch. And I actually had uh, recordings of Kim and me talking to our, her psychiatrist. You know, he said, sure, no problem. Um, It's not like we're putting that on the podcast or anything. It was just for us to try to make sense of this and, and keep track of this. And I could hear some of our conversations where when I listened back to it, you know, after she had passed, I was listening for, did I miss something? Did he miss something? And any moment where she said something that had a hint of suicidality in any way, I kind of had this drop in my gut and then inevitably he or I would say something to follow up and mm-hmm. check it out and assess it in our way. And it was fine. There wasn't any active suicidality that she showed at all. In fact, her, one of her friends and her mom both checked in with her and flat out point blank said, are you in any danger of hurting yourself? And she kept saying, no, I would never do that. No way, I have too much to lose no so you know I I don't think I ever said to her hey are you feeling suicidal because it it never occurred to me never and Kim and I had talked about suicide for years you know just as as fellow therapists and people interested in you know the environment where Anthony Bourdain Kate Spade Robin Williams Chris Cornell like these public Mm -hmm. very public figures and for very different reasons, right? Um, whether it was drugs or a physical condition or just their own mental state, right? And we would talk about it. And what I remember, several conversations we had, I would I would say, I, I just don't get it. We only have one consciousness. I just don't get it. And she would say, well, when you're when you're in that place, you don't have that microchip in your brain that would stop you so you can think about it. You know, it's just not present. Yeah. And I get that now. I got it then too in terms of when a client that I've worked with is experiencing that kind of panic, you know, that kind of anxiety. You're not thinking clearly. You're not in your wise mind. Yeah. It's almost a delusional state. I think
0: uh, most, if not all, people when they're about to move towards suicide are, yeah, they're not, they're not reality testing properly. Right. Yeah. yeah there's, there's no reality test. Yeah. There's no test. But it sounds like from that statement she made that she had been there in the past. Like she touched that, that level of kind of delusional despair, hopelessness. Like yeah, she understood it.
1: Yeah, and that's something I knew. Mm -hmm. That happened in her twenties. It's what led to her diagnosis. She left acting and performing, and got herself well. Uh, She was in treatment for a while, and you know, it's it's the kind of thing where when you hear about suicide and you don't do the work that we do you think somebody just keeps spiraling into despair and just thinking, oh, it's so bad, it's so bad, I can't live, I don't want to live, oh, woe is me. And it's not always that at all. And she had a wonderful life and a lot of things were going well for her and she had a mental illness and it took over and it hit her like a a whirlwind in that moment
2: Mm.
1: without that microchip in her brain to stop her. There was no reality test. There was, this is so intolerable and I know an escape hatch. Mm -hmm. And there was, you know, one of her friends afterwards asked me, did you check her phone? Did you check her like web browser? And I didn't even have to ask why she asked me that. I knew what she meant. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I just said, she knew knew what to do if that's what she was going to do and a psychiatrist friend of mine said yeah this wasn't this wasn't a gesture it was an act and that's it was something you know i i grappled and grapple with because it's what i do for a living but when it when it's your personal experience it's different yeah and when it happens with your wife in your house All bets are off. I knew she wasn't doing well as I wasn't doing well physically. She wasn't doing well mentally and that day, October 26, 2018, we went, we went to a car dealership to go get a new car. And they didn't have the right one that we thought, so we wound up spending a little extra time there than we wanted. Uh, a buddy of mine was gonna be in town for literally one night, and the Dodgers and the Red Sox were playing in the World Series, like my childhood dream. I was a fan <laughs> of both teams, you know? <laughs> Grew up in LA, but have been a Sox fan since I was like eight years old. And it was the culmination. And my buddy I've known since I was nine years old, we're going to watch a World Series game of my two teams. It was great. And he's in town for one night. Awesome. So he came to the house as we were driving back from the dealership. And it was an unremarkable day and an unremarkable drive. in In just about every sense, except, you know, the sense that uh, Kim wanted to listen to Esther Perel's podcast on the way home and it kind of gave us some idea of the podcast that we wanted to create, you know? And it didn't even spark a a real discussion of that. It was just, oh, there's an idea. Yeah, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll probably work on that later. Yep, and that was it, you know? And we get home and my friend was there and we all kind of just connect and chat for a little while, and the game's gonna start, she goes into the bedroom, we go in to watch the game, and I go into the bedroom and she says, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm sleepy, I just wanna sleep. I said, okay, well if you sleep now, are you gonna make it through the night? And she said, yeah, I'm just so tired. I said, okay. And I went back in the other room to, to watch the game. And this was normal. She had done this. She had done things over the last several months like uh, put on headphones and and listen to meditations. And she would even say, hey, I'm going to go in the other room. If you hear crying, that's okay. That's just me. I'm just working something out. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it was, whether it was the somatic experiencing she was doing or processing trauma, whatever it might have been, she was really working at getting better and getting through it. And she took a lot on, especially physically, caring for me when I couldn't. So, her being tired was right. She was a champion napper. She could sleep for nine hours, wake up, take a three hour nap, and then, you know, take another cat nap, have some coffee, take another nap, and then sleep through the night. Mm-hmm. It was like no problem. And anywhere, anytime, she could just be out like a light. It was her superpower. One of them. And, um, you know, we're we're in the other room watching a a World Series game, and at one point, my friend's dad called him, and I said, "Oh yeah, I'll pause the game," and I, you know, pause the game and and go into the bedroom, um, just to go to the bathroom and check on Kim, and uh, she was not in the bed; she was sitting underneath the the door to the patio, under the doorknob. And at first, it was just confusion, like, well, what are you doing sitting over there? And then I realized she wasn't just sitting over there. She had hung herself from the doorknob. And I went into a crisis mode that I know very, very well from when I did crisis work and yelled at my buddy to call 911. I cut her down and started CPR, but I'm trying to scan through am I doing CPR right which I don't think I was I was doing chest compression chest compressions and breathing into her which now I know it's just compressions regardless I have no idea if she was there for 20 minutes or an hour and a half and by the time the the paramedics came you know I, I was still in shock utter shock and disbelief and they revived her. they got her heart beating again, mm-hmm. and we're going to take her to the local hospital, and they had police come to ask me questions. I realized as they were asking me questions, they were looking for foul play, which is standard, and I was just trying to get through that so I could get to the hospital to be with my wife. and you know, I grab all the different meds that she was taking, and i have I have all that there. And I'm thinking they'll need this information. I'm also relieved that they got her heart going and she'll be fine, right? Get to the hospital, and I say my my wife was just brought in, and they say, oh, oh yeah, come through. We'll have a social worker talk to you. And as soon as I heard that, I see your eyes just went up like, yeah, I knew what that meant. And I'm kind of still in a daze, just thinking, okay, what does this mean? How do I how do I process this? What do I do with this? And I had already called her best friend, my sister and got them going so they could come to the hospital and they could start taking care of things because I'm under the impression that they revived her and, you know, she'll be fine and we'll talk about what just happened. So the social worker says, um, she was asking how long was Kim like that and I don't know. I said it could have been 20 minutes to an hour and a half. And she said her brain was deprived of oxygen for so long, we don't know what, if any, functioning she'll Mm -hmm. regain. And that's when I knew she was gone. And that was when I first got to the hospital. But she still had vital signs. She had brainstem activity. And this began the most horrific week of my life because she was alive for a week. During that week, she was in the hospital. Her consciousness was gone. She was, for all intents and purposes. For all intents and purposes, she was gone. Yet they wouldn't pronounce her. And I'm dealing with telling her family I mean, everything, Craig from telling her family to telling her clients, to getting somebody to reschedule her clients and, and tell them something, and getting family and friends in town. Knowing that my wife is gone. And I'm a wreck. I'm upside down. And I'm still looking at, I don't know what's going on with me. Physically and now mentally and emotionally, forget it. I'm upside down. And yeah. I, you know, I i just utter disbelief. Just yeah. could not believe it.
0: Why well, was there anyone there for you?
1: My sister. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there were more. I only remember her because I leaned on her heavily. I couldn't function. I, you know, she would ask, like, do you want to drive to the hospital do you want me to drive? Like, I'll drive because I needed some control. And, I mean, she put her life on pause. She was cooking for me. She was sleeping in my bed, you know, helping me with, with the dog. And I honestly can't remember how quickly different family members or friends came. A few stayed with us, I think. But it was that week I was a zombie walking to the hospital, you know, walking to her room every day. And it was brutal. And I still, I couldn't feel the left side of my body, didn't know what was happening with me physically. I, I was in utter disbelief. Were you, were you upset with her in any way?
0: I wonder, because I'm sure I can't imagine. I mean, I'm imagining maybe she felt like she was a burden or that there's somehow that this would be good for you. But here you are in, in such desperate place, medically, physically, and she, she leaves. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I imagine that was a whole mix of
1: awful confusion and. Oh, yeah. And it was, it was the stages of grief, you know, that, that yes, there was anger and yes, there was denial and bargaining and all of that. And I was cycling through it all. For me, I knew the anger was there, but I wasn't feeling it, not yet. I was feeling protective of my wife, I didn't want anybody mentioning the word suicide. I didn't know how to tell anybody. And it was, again, it was a week before she was officially pronounced. Mm -hmm. But in that short time afterwards, I remembered a couple of things. (laughs) I remember that that night That World Series game wasn't just a regular baseball game. It went like seven or eight hours. It was almost constantly on. Every time I was in the hospital and looked up, I would see baseball, Mm -hmm. my two teams. And I remember just not caring at all. And it was that sensation of not caring about so many things. I just, I didn't. I couldn't, I was in a daze. And that anger that you're talking about, I wasn't ready to unpack that yet. I compartmentalized that. I I had been seeing a therapist that I had known in my 20s, uh, a male therapist that I've worked with a, a bunch at different points in my life. And I called a female therapist that I had seen, also new in my 20s, and started working with each of them weekly. And they knew each other. Immediately after her death. Immediately, yeah. Yeah. Um, I I just, I, I needed support. And again, my sister was great, but I had an outpouring from friends and family that I just, I didn't know what to do with. It was either too much or not enough at the same time. And I couldn't make sense of anything. And again I was protecting her and her legacy and I didn't really know how to do that and one of her best friends and I you know were fairly close and when we were organizing a memorial for Kim I was still trying to control and curate and you know there were certain people I knew she didn't like that she didn't want there and and I you know I was trying to protect what she would want and and, how I knew her and I i think I, I clashed with a few people because I was trying too hard. I was holding on to something that just wasn't there. Mm-hmm.
0: Feels so alone. Like, I'm just imagining you trying to protect her physically as she's still alive, protect her legacy, protect her um, her reputation and contact all her clients and and then try to figure out what are you going to do for yourself with this mysterious illness and find yourself some therapist and then you've got a bunch of clients and it, it sounds so lonely.
1: Yeah, it probably was. And for me, my story went on hold. And I didn't have one. I was back at work with my clients two weeks later. Uh, The week that she died, I went to see a neurologist, a specialist, who said, yep, you have MS. And the good news is it's relapsing, remitting MS. So if you're gonna get it, this is the good kind to have. And, you know, I remember being in that room with her, and she's one of the top doctors for MS, which is great. And she says, "You know, and I've had autoimmune issues before. I had psoriasis for a decade, and it covered 80% of my body. And uh, she said, there's a med that I want you to take for, for MS. And hey, it's a twofer, because it, it will actually clear up the psoriasis too. And I would never take meds for psoriasis. I just refused. I didn't want anything in my body. I wanted to do it all naturally. And when she said that, and I had kind of no choice, like, you have MS, you need to take a med, okay. Oh, and it's going to work for psoriasis. And I look across the room at what should be my wife, and it's my sister.
0: Hmm.
1: And I remember just the heart dropped. And again, this is the week that she died. And that's, I did feel so alone then, and so grateful that my sister was there for me. and it was it was it was brutal. Hmm. brutal. and i i didn't have my own story. It, it wasn't like i could say, yeah, i've got ms. you know, it, it was no my wife just ended her life in our house while i was in the next room. i didn't want to say that either.
0: yeah. there's a lot of secrets.
1: yeah, and i'm i'm a pretty transparent guy. Mm-hmm and I just wasn't ready and that line that you hear so much whenever somebody passes and you read the articles about it it says please respect the family's privacy yeah because they need a a moment just to absorb it you know and however long that moment takes I, I needed a moment I didn't know how long that moment would be I could, like I said, I could compartmentalize. I could be there with my clients and be effective with them and for them. That wasn't me. That was easy. Mm -hmm.
0: Did you tell any of them? I'm just imagining that if I were to lose my wife... And go back to work two weeks later, that it would be comforting because it's where I feel at home work-wise. But I would also imagine me just completely falling apart and having needing to tell at least some people that, hey, I, I'm going through something awful. Or were you able to just shove that all down and charge forward and not let
1: anyone in for you know, what you were going through? A little bit of both. I did not let anyone in with what I was going through with my wife. I was able to say, yeah, mem- remember a few months ago when I had that weird headache thing like, yeah, yeah, well, it turns out I've got MS. Oh my god, really? Yeah, but it's okay. You know, so I told my clients, I, I, those that asked, you know, I'm not going to not going to hide anything from them necessarily. Mm. I'm also not going to disclose unnecessarily to them. So, uh, the ones that asked, it was my health. Mm. And none of
0: them knew that you just lost your wife. No, yeah,
1: not at that point. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to. And I I was still wearing my ring. I wasn't ready to take it off. And it was really interesting because I, I could sort of put it on me because, oh yeah, it was my health, and yes, I have this diagnosis. And they, you know, clients were affected and we got to process them being affected While it looked like it was just no big deal for me because compared to what else I was also dealing with, it was no big deal to me. I didn't care. Mm -hmm. And I certainly didn't have control over any of it. And it was, I did a lot of processing on my own. I had the therapist, but as soon as I could physically get out and and hike again with the dog, I I did, but it, it took several months before I could do that. I just I wasn't in a good physical state. And that was really hard because I just couldn't get out and clear my mind. I would maybe walk to the park with him and listen to a book on audio. I had to have something going in my ears almost at all times. I could not stop. I couldn't stop and be still. Mm-hmm. And the things that I was listening to were like Denial of Death, you know, great book. Um,
0: I'm so curious about you getting two Therapist's. You know, when you lost Kim. <laughs> I'm wondering what that looked like. You had a male f- therapist, a female therapist. Right. And as you're working through the days and weeks and months after her her loss, and also dealing with this huge loss of your own autonomy and just the uncertainty of having MS, you were,
1: how did therapy play out with each of them? They kind of served two different functions for me. There were two different types of therapists. And... For me, the the male therapist that I saw was kind of more of a getting yourself proactive and, and finding your sense of, of purpose and being of service and, and what you're doing with your life and, and how you're moving forward and processing and, and go out there and, and, and do. And the female therapist, her energy was more about sit and let's process and what's coming up for you and what are you feeling and, and what is that? So for me it was just two different speeds mm-hmm. and i needed those two different voices
0: yeah How long did it take for you to begin to explore the, the story of what happened and how, because I, th- you know, I think of when we go through awful stuff, our own darkness, there's kind of the initial story, there's the early story, the aftermath, and then I think there's the story that we eventually hold in our heart and our head that's, that's a story that we can live with, that's a story not of guilt, not of shame, not of blame. Not of anger, not of resentment, but I think ideally, you know, we move to some place where we can hold a story that feels true, that is true, that uh yeah, that we can live with, that we can metabolize and hold. And it it's it's not like a piece of poison, but it's more like maybe a piece of broken glass. Hmm. But it's something yeah, that we can hold on to and and I, I think with suicide of a loved one. That story is so crucial because, you know, there's, you lose a family member, right? You can think, how could you do this or what was going on? Or was I not enough or I should have been there? Or, what if, what if, when really, as we talked about a few minutes ago, almost surely for the vast majority of people who are at that point, it, they're not thinking any of that. Right. Not thinking about, oh my my husband has a mess or how's he going to be or, um, What's this going to do to him? No, it's it's this dark whirlwind black hole that just sucks people in. And I mean, what did your evolving story look like? And was that something you worked out in therapy, or you're
1: still working on? I, I think I'll try to give you the medium answer, not the super long one. I was very much trying to find Kim's story, and I I didn't have one of my own. Maybe I wasn't ready for it. Maybe I didn't know it. Maybe I needed to find out more of Kim's. And I went through a lot of that when I was looking at things that she had written in journals um, and trying to understand her her headspace, her mind state. And I I couldn't because I'm not her and I don't have that illness. Yet I was still protecting her story and trying to craft it in a way that put her in the most strong and beautiful light that I could. And that took a lot of my energy. And that's a lot of what I was doing. And I did not have my own story. I was not in touch with it. I didn't care to be. I had another client who was actively suicidal. And she's somebody that was talking about it with me openly. And it was really tough because it was just a month or two after Kim had died. And wow. I'm kind of realizing this is everything I wish my wife would have said to me and didn't. So I'm almost getting to play this out. And when she was talking about, you know, her husband wouldn't care, or, you know, people would be better off, I disclosed to her as well and let her know what it looks like to the people around when the person you love mm. ends their life. And shortly after that, she got herself into a treatment center, and I would say it saved her life. Uh,
0: I think therapist disclosure can be life-saving.
1: It was, yeah. it was. It also eventually came back to bite me because she resented it and had a very borderline reaction to it. Mm. and. I kind of you know, shrug and go, well, I saved your life the way that I knew how, the way that was effective, and now you need this to be effective in your life. Okay. All of that to say, I still didn't have my story. If I did, it was only in the context of helping somebody discover their own. So I didn't have a story. And I had gone through, like I said, investigating Kim's and looking at the blame that I carried and and what she might have been thinking or feeling and what I could have done differently, I, I went through all those stages of grief. And it wasn't until I left LA. I sold my house, the house that she and I had gotten and started our life in, and I went out to the mountains in Boulder, I think I told you this, you know, being in Colorado and being in the mountains in the snow with my dog and a guitar mm-hmm. and a laptop because I was still seeing clients, right? but i could actually slow down and through songwriting begin to process that was maybe my third therapist yeah
0: How did you know you needed to make that transition to Colorado with your guitar and songwriting? Or, or did it just happen and only afterwards did you re- realize that this was, oh, this was a step in my healing? I hadn't necessarily understood it that way.
1: There was a great moment in therapy for me with my male therapist where he would say, change the doorknob. And I, you know, would kind of say, at first he said, change the door. I was like, no, it's it's got the doggy door in it. I'm not going to change it. I don't need to change the door. I changed the curtain. Like, I don't need to change the door. And then he said, well, change the doorknob. Like, I'm not going to change the fucking doorknob. Like, it's, it's just a doorknob. Who cares? And we kept going through that. And he kept repeating that over, you know, a month or so. And eventually I yelled at him. And I just went, I'm not changing the fucking doorknob. And that's when it hit me that, oh, because I don't want to let go of my wife.
2: Mm.
1: Oh, shit. That's why you were saying that. Okay. All right. All right. I need I need to make a change. I can't stay in this house because I'm holding on to the ghost of her. I'm mm-hmm. holding on to a future that we don't have together. I'm holding on to a memory, and that's not tangible. Mm-hmm. So I, I called... You know, a friend of mine who's an agent said, hey, I got to sell my house. I got to get out of here. I, I can't, I can't be here. I don't want to sell my house. I don't want to leave. But I also didn't want my wife to die. Yeah. I don't want MS. How many months
0: after her death was that that you finally realized you had to leave? <sighs>
1: um, almost
0: two years maybe?
1: No, almost a year. hmm
0: So that was a year of doing what you needed to do, seeing people, going to your doctor's appointments, um you know, putting one foot in front of the other, but coming back to that really haunted place. Yeah. um, Yeah. Thinking maybe things would get better or change or improve, but as your therapist pointed out, nothing was going to change. No.
1: No. Not unless I made the change. Mm. And that's... It was an easy decision to make. Like, oh yeah, I can't be here. Any future that I have in this house will have her. I can't do that. I don't have a future with her. Therefore, I need to sell the house. Logical. But outside of logic, the emotional part, like that was brutal. Yeah. Because, right, that's letting go to the last
0: pieces of your life and the two of you and where you slept and yeah
1: yeah and that was you know, I put all my stuff in storage and left, and it was at that point that, oh, everything is packed away <laughs> compartmentalized, right and I'm I don't know what I am, I don't know where I live, I don't know what I am at all anymore. My physical health is different. Emotionally, much different. And it wasn't until I I got out to Colorado and realized I don't know what my story is because I've been trying to understand Kim's and tell hers and I have no appreciation for what I've been through.
0: Mm. So really the decision to sell your house, come to Colorado, that was your tangible action, I gotta do something differently. Yeah. I, need, I need a new context, a new home, a new way of being. Uh,
1: Yes, it was the recognition of I need that new. It was more of a I need to tangibly not be in the old. Mm. I didn't know what the new was. I had no idea. And it wasn't scary because I just had to be done with the old. I had to leave what I had known. And that was so hard Mm. and so sad and disappointing and frustrating, and I got angry. And then I started having all of those emotions. And that's why I'm grateful I had the guitar and I have music as an outlet, Mm -hmm. because that's that's how I worked a lot of it out. Do you
0: think as you were starting to write those songs and and put put that all together, that you knew that that was going to be an important part of your healing? Again, or do you think that was kind of a post-hoc thing, that just the music came out of you and it was only later that you realized... Well, that actually was a big part of healing.
1: I I think it was while it was happening. You know, I, I hadn't really written new music in a while, and I remember writing one of the songs while I was out there, and I sent it to a friend of mine, and just kind of went, I, I I don't know, and he was like floored. He just went, "This is beautiful." Are you kidding me? Mm. And I, oh, okay. Well, maybe I'll do some more of this. Right, Because I was thinking it was self-indulgent. It was me telling a, a deeply personal story. And in part, I guess that's what music can be. I mean, that's certainly what <laughs> all of country music is. But I didn't know what it would mean to me and for me until I kept embarking on it. And writing. writing became, like I said, my healing because I was actively working out my emotions through through the feelings you know in part through the words and when i when i'm coming up with something when i'm singing through something so many different incarnations Mm -hmm. of of a lyric or a melody while i'm writing it and it's some of it's horrible but just needed to come out (laughs) were there insights
0: um that you had as you wrote your music things that you realized, emotions you got in touch with, places that you went that you just hadn't been able to go?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I can hit the anger and the feeling that, you know, I, I was left here. And I didn't want to be mad at Kim, so it was hard to blame her, Mm -hmm. and it was easier to blame her mental illness or the mental illness that took her, overtook her. So there was a, I remember one lyric um, where it was a song called Hold On To Memories, and one that was deeply personal, and I, I wrote about leaving the house, I wrote about you know the promise of the future that we don't have, and uh, I remember saying something. There was a line about um, that I'm just here with what you left behind, mm. and I didn't want to say the word you, so I would sing that got left behind. And it just didn't work right. And when I was in the studio and recording it, I even thought about, I wanna say, that got left behind, that got left behind. And what came out in the moment was that you left behind. Yeah, it was her. Yeah, yeah. And she was somebody who had that mental illness. So I can't separate the two and that's part of what I saw in her, what I appreciated and, and loved about her.
2: I'm just so tired I've been walking so far With my feet to the fire I keep trying to move forward Every step I take away Is another step toward Breaking my faith and breaking my mind. The broken down promise that you left behind. Hold on my heart. Hold on to the memories. All we can see in the, dark.
1: Oh, onto my the very first sorry the second time we met you know we were our second date. Um, we were chatting and and my sleeve had rolled up and she saw like a little patch of dry skin and she said, "Oh, is that is that eczema?" And I said, "No, it's psoriasis." She said, "Are you sure?" <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, yeah. Covers 80% of my body. Like, "Yes, that's and, and she just kind of went, "Oh. Oh, w- well well that's your thing." And you know, I'd been single for several years before that because I was I, I, I didn't want to date. I had this this thing. Mm. And I was she said it with such compassion and empathy. Mm. Like she had her thing. You had your thing. And exactly. And Mm -hmm. she said, oh, well, that's your thing. I guess we're doing it. Okay, well, here's mine. I have bipolar too. And I went, oh, okay. And we both just kind of went, here's our deepest, darkest. Like, Mm. okay, cool. And I see you and I accept you. And it was wonderful. And as much as I want to blame the mental illness for ending her life. It was her with the mental illness. Mm-hmm. That's who I married. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. And you know I wouldn't trade that for anything. That's that first song that I wrote. You know, I I'd, I would do it all over again. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't trade that time in my life for anything. Mm-hmm. I bet
0: she would have married you all over again too. She's like, wait, if I knew he was going to get another autoimmune illness, (laughs) what? What is that? How How do you get two? Right? What is that? Right. uh, So so you were in Colorado for a few months and you um, wrote that music and then you came back. Yeah. You you know, we're sitting in your office now in California and this is where you do therapy and we just ate at one of your. Favorite places next door, right? And yeah, I mean, bring us full circle in terms of where you are now. What the journey ahead looks like, if you have a sense of that, and
1: yeah, yeah, it's 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 a lot different now. But first, I have to ask because we are sitting in my office, but you're in my chair. Do you do you feel it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think. You know, I, I came back and I still, I had a purpose, which was record the album. And before that, you know, my purpose was create the podcast and do that. So I kept having these purposes. And when I finished the album and found the title for it and had it, and it's called The Storybook Ends, and it it's written in a way that however you want to interpret it. The story book ends or the story book ends. Either way. There's something poetic and real to me about recognizing that as a chapter in my life, in my story. And I can have another chapter. And I needed to create that to tangibly see that. And there was... I mean, over the past year or two I tried dating and it was brutal. Either I wasn't ready or as much as I'd say I wasn't going to compare I mean and you can't compare anything to Kim in the same way that I can't compare Beckett to my old dog. They're two different dogs. Loving this new dog doesn't diminish my love for my old dog. And I tried to apply that to women but I it didn't didn't really work and it was very interesting to me that i i've had dreams that were very visceral with kim and there was uh one that felt like she was giving me permission to kind of have my own experience of life of what's here and now and it was Incredible, because it really hit me at a time when I'd finished the album, I'd done that, and I felt like, oh, okay, maybe I can have my story and my experience going forward. And I don't know in terms of my purpose what's next, but I know that I am as I am. I'm somebody who has MS, whose wife did end her life, and those are parts of my story. And they're just parts. Curious to see what other parts are going to be there because I'm I'm not done. I don't know what it'll be.
0: After we turned off the recorder Doug and I sat together on his couch and He showed me photos of Kim and of their engagement and the wedding, and so many amazing times together. And as the photos appeared and faded in the slideshow, Kim's beautiful voice sang in the background, a recording that she had made during a vocal lesson. It felt like something really important had just transpired, something so human and intimate and necessary. One person sharing a story and one person witnessing it, receiving it, accepting it fully. And we had only met an hour before. We first had lunch at a sidewalk cafe, and then I think we entered into a sacred space, that of one person becoming vulnerable with another.
2: friend, You are medicine. I never wanted this to ever end. But there are no guarantees. Whatever won't be, won't be. I want to fight for you, but it's not up to me. I slow down, go back then with what I know now i do it all over again For that moment, you live life with no regret Would you do it all over again? Your face. This wasn't your time or place And you can't keep a wildflower in a vase If I slow down, go back then with what I know now I'd do it all over again For that moment, you'd live life with no regrets Do it all over again Just need a little time To mend my heart and change my mind Something's gotta give when nothing takes God damn, I need a break I've had more than a man can take Back then, with what I know now, I'd do it all over again. For that moment, you live life with no regret. Would you do it all over again?